KC is my call sign, so it's my initials, but it also stands for Killer Chicks. That is really cool. I gotta Google her. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Cockpits and Cocktails. I'm so excited because we have Kim Casey Campbell with us, and she's got a really cool story. If you haven't heard about it, you will hear it. I am Natalie Flagrol Kelly, and I'm here with Play Alyssa. I'm so excited. I was like reviewing some things. I was Googling you, of course. So excited that you did this and took time out of your evening uh, to do this. So we really appreciate that. It's totally. been a pretty interesting ride. I mean, just looking back. I actually met uh, Casey at Oshkosh through Heather Penny, who was also a guest of ours previously. Two badass uh, female pilots. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking like having Heather, I was trying to tell people about the Heather episode because that kind of leads into this episode. And I'm like, how cool to like kind of lay the the groundwork for women in as military yeah. pilots. That's yeah. It's totally. been a pretty interesting ride. I mean, just looking back, I, I started flying in the military in 2001 is when I started flying A-10s. And it is just the landscape in, t- in terms of the number of women flying now has changed so dramatically. Um, and Absolutely. It's, it's really exciting to see. Yeah, I think oh. in the Fifi or Nicole, I remember when Nicole was on, she was talking about how she felt like she kind of started to see a change um, when she started flying as well. So that's cool. I'm, I'm, that's exciting to hear. Um, and, you know, with women that show the bravery that, that you have and Heather and Nicole, and it just shows that it's possible. Women are, can be great fighter combat pilots and, and military pilots and be successful and do very heroic things. You know, it's funny. I've known Nicole uh, Fifi since I was 12. So we go way wow. back. We, uh, we met each other when we were in Civil Air Patrol, um, both with aspirations of going to the Air Force Academy and becoming fighter pilots. So uh, she now lives a mile from me. And it's just oh like cool to, to look back and look where we were when we were 12 with just these goals and dreams and, um, you know, just to to see where, you know, we've, we've come, um, after all these years. Yeah. So so it's it's like this friend all along. Yeah. 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 So, so if you start from the beginning, was it civil air patrol? Like what got you into aviation? Was your family into it? Like what, what's the beginning? Um, the beginning is, um, the challenger disaster. I, and I know that might sound a little crazy, but, um, for me, it was this moment in fifth grade, I mean, I don't even know, I don't think I really understood what it was then, but I think watching it on TV and feeling just so really just devastated, but also connected in a way of like realizing these astronauts died doing something that was bigger than them, that something that they believed in, something that they were willing to give their lives for. I don't know. I just, I connected with it and um, decided it really very quickly after that, that I wanted to be an astronaut. And my dad had um, been in the Air Force for a period of time. And I asked him, what's the best way to become an astronaut? And he said, well, most of the astronauts have gone to the Air Force Academy and gone on to be fighter pilots. And so I was like, all right, that's what I want to do. And in fifth grade, told my dad that I don't think he thought I would stick with it. Um, But it really just kind of set me up for, you know, wanting to start flying, getting into Civil Air Patrol, all of these things um, really helped prepare me to get to the point where I could actually go to the academy and compete for pilot training. Wow. Well, that kind of reminds me of actually Nicole's story. And maybe that's just how it needs to be with with people that uh, aspire to go in the military. You really have to have that kind of um, plan and foundation kind of early on maybe that helps you be successful because then you can kind of start laying out what you need to do you know when you get to high school and how you need to perform and to to be on that track would you agree I think for the service academies that really helps to have some of those things you know to set you up I would say that prior to that I mean I was you know I was interested in school but it wasn't really like this passion I you know i my parents would say I spent more time trying to do cheerleading and pageants than anything else. And when I decided I wanted to be an astronaut, it was like, it was a switch. Like I, I did my homework without asking. I really started to get involved in, in things. 
I just, I found my goal. I found my mission. Um, I actually had a, a little gold star that it was cut out of uh, like cardboard that I hung from the ceiling in my room that said, reach for the stars. And it was just kind of my reminder of what I really wanted to go after. And so it was from that point on, it was really my path and kept me um, doing the right things and kept me competitive to be able to go to the Air Force Academy. Isn't it funny how when we actually apply something, apply ourselves to something that we're interested in, how much better we perform. And I wish that people at young ages could find those things that they're really passionate about. And I I look back to my high school and I was like, I was not interested in anything. And you talk about beauty pageants, you know, it's like I was in all the sports and all the things, but that didn't like set me up for what was next. And yeah figuring that out. So I I think that's really funny that your beauty pageant gone A-10 pilot. (laughs) Yeah. I I tell um, our cadets at the Air Force Academy that in terms of when they ask me what should they do with their careers or um, what should they major in. And the one piece of advice I say is find something that you love, right? Find something that you're going to enjoy because if you're going to spend five years or 10 years doing it, or even four years at college studying something like if you enjoy it, you're going to do so much better. It'll be easier. You're in it. Like it's your interest as opposed to doing something that somebody else wants you to do. Mm. It just, it makes such a big difference if it's your goal, what you want to go after. Force it. Yeah. It's not, not good. Um, so you, you're like your dad. He was in, he was in the Air Force. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Did he have any, was he trying at all to persuade you to go that direction? I think if anything, my dad probably would have um, swayed me the other way. I think it was hard for him. You know, when he was at the Air Force Academy, there were no women. And so he had this idea of his little girl going off to the Academy. Um, and so I think Different he world. As, as any parent would be just a little nervous. Um, but once I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, he helped me work out. He helped me build my upper body strength in terms of he, we hung a pull-up bar in the bathroom so that I could do pull-ups going in and out. I um, would run uh, the hills with him near our house in my combat boots. So they were all broken in and ready to go. So I think he was nervous, but he really became my biggest supporter um, in terms of helping me be ready because it was really important to be ready, not just, you know, mentally, but physically as well so that I could, um, do the, you know, do the best that I could, which would set me up for success in terms of getting a pilot slot. Yeah. So you mean you just can't show up and be like, I'm ready to train now. (laughs) That would be awesome. But no, (laughs) unfortunately the um, pilot slots are pretty competitive. It kind of depends based on the year and the needs of the air force, but it is very competitive and it's, you know, it's with everything you do, the, the harder you work at it, then you put yourself in a position to get what you want. Um, how does the the pilot slot work do you get do you just join the air force and then test for that or how how do you go about finding what you're going to be accepted into part of it is um air force academy anyway part of it is your order of merit so how well you do and that includes your academics your athletics your military so it's everything combined in an order of merit um, but there's also um, a, it wasn't this way when I was there, but there is now testing associated with it and flight hours, things like that will help you. And you go through kind of some testing to see how you do with certain tasks and the, the better you do, the higher score you get. So all of that goes in together. Um, but really a, a lot of it is your, your order of merit and how well you do while you're there. And it will help, you know, put you in a position to kind of pick. So you get you know, your dream sheet, if you will. Um, which is how you end up choosing an airplane later too. It's a dream sheet. And the better you do the, the, you know, the end, you end up in a position where you can choose what you want. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the airplane that you wound up flying, tell, tell us about how you got into flying the, the A-10. Um, so when I was at, uh, pilot training, I realized that I, um, I absolutely loved flying the low levels. Anytime we could get down low, um, I, it was something that I don't know, I was just, it was enjoyable. I really, I really liked it. And so I started thinking about, okay, what airplanes can I go fly low? Um, and then started talking to people about the missions of the different fighters. I knew I wanted to go fighters. I just wasn't exactly sure uh, which fighter I wanted to take, um, or what I would be competitive for. 
And I started learning about the A-10 and specifically with the A-10, it was all about the mission of supporting our troops on the ground. And um, I don't know, that just stuck with me in terms of if that was something I could go do in combat to be able to help our troops that are out on the ground and help them get home safely. Um, I just really connected with it. And so for me, that was what it was about. I mean, it started out with this, I'd love to go fly at 100 feet and rage around the mountains and do all these fun things, which is still really fun. And I still uh, like that a lot about the A-10. But the mission for me of supporting our troops on the ground was really the most important. Yeah, it sounds like it. So when you go through, um, you're at the Air Force Academy, what are you doing in terms of, of flying at that point? When do you find out what what you're going to be flying it takes a while so first you get your pilot slot out of uh, the air force academy and then you spend a year at pilot training um, going through different training um, in different military training aircraft so first uh, we started out in a t-37 just a side-by-side -side trainer um, and then from there you will select a different route if you want to go helicopters or if you want to go the heavy aircraft or cargo uh, planes or if you want to go fighters that you kind of split in these different tracks uh, and so I was able to go to the T-38 route which is the route that we go with fighters and again it's it's constant evaluation and check rides and trying to do your best at all of these things and academics and everything to go with it and then at the end you just you get racked and stacked and depending upon your performance and you put your dream sheet in and um, and then they choose what uh, based on your performance and based on what you want, um, that's how you end up with the the fighter. In in my case, that um, is best is really the best fit. It also depends on what's available in the Air Force at the time. Uh, so there is a little bit of luck and timing that goes into it. But it was pretty exciting to actually um, on the night on assignment night where we get the drops. Um, they put you up on stage and they kind of uh, build it up a little bit and then they flash behind you a picture of the airplane and I remember oh. the A-10 and it was just like really cool really exciting that is cool yeah that is really cool is your time in the Air Force Academy you know I have no idea what that would be like is it stressful is it fun is it what is it like to be in the Air Force Academy it's all of the above I mean it's <laughs> stressful because it's it's a it's difficult um, in terms of the academics are very hard, um, but it's time management of trying to do a lot of different things because you have all, all of the military requirements and training, um, the athletics, everything. It's just a, a struggle in time management and trying to figure out how to do it and be good at it. Um, but at the same time, um, I've met some of the best friends there, you know, friends that are will be my friends for life, just going through some of the challenges that we went through, whether it was our basic training, which is kind of the boot camp part of it, um, to some of our survival training, uh, being out in the woods and, uh, just, you know, trying to survive off limited food and navigate uh, through the mountains of Colorado. I think it's, yeah. just, you make connections <clears throat> that will last a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. So tell me about um, what is this piece of airplane that you have behind you? <laughs> yeah, so uh, that is a piece of my A-10 um, from Iraq. Wow. Yeah. So it's the, the tail, the back tail section. Um, and the reason I have it is because after I flew the airplane um, on a mission, it unfortunately never flew again. Um, yeah. Had a few too many holes, yeah. non-repairable. And so I've got a And you got to take one home. I got to take a piece of it home, which is pretty wow. nice. Once they realized it wasn't going to fly anymore, they said, hey, do you want to cut the piece of the tail out? <laughs> I was like, can I do that? Yeah. So they cut it out for me. And um, yeah, it's kind of nice. It's a little bit of a, a memory of a, yeah, probably one of the most difficult missions I've ever flown in my entire life. Yeah. So can you tell us, uh, to the listeners, a little bit about what that was? Sure. Uh, so this was back in 2003, so it's been a little while, but this was at the start of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and our squadron was deployed to Kuwait to support our troops on the ground. And it had gotten to the point in April, um, pretty difficult situation on the ground. Um, our troops were taking fire um, constantly, and so our regular mission was we'd take off from Kuwait, we'd fly up to Baghdad, which is about 300 miles, about an hour in an A-10, and we'd air refuel, um, so we'd be ready to go. And then they would put us in these stacks, um, which were stacks of airplanes surrounding Baghdad so that 
when the call came in, we were ready to go. And they would just kind of funnel airplanes in um, as, as needed. But this day, uh, the weather was terrible. We couldn't see the ground below. Um, and uh, back then, the A-10 doesn't have the capabilities that it does now. For us, it was always wanted, we needed to see a fight visually so that we could employ our weapons. We weren't really sure that we were going to be able to do anything, um, but we were just waiting to see what would happen. And we got a call from a ground forward air controller who said they were taking fire and they needed immediate assistance. And we just knew that we had to get there as quickly as possible. Flew right over the top of the target and then started looking for holes in the weather so that we could just dive down through, get below the clouds and see what we could do to help them out. And I remember, you know, we were in formation and then my flight lead's like, I see a hole. And he just kind of peeled off and disappeared below me and then said, all right, it's your turn. You know, find a hole in the clouds, come down through. And so I just did my best, found a hole in the clouds and dove down below the weather. And then it was just almost surreal because I could see this firefight. I mean, we were so low now that I could see tracers and smoke going back and forth across the river. It was just this massive firefight and we were trying to figure out how to get in as quickly as possible um when at about that time you know we're talking about how we're going to set up and do our weapons delivery passes and i suddenly see this like bright flash next to my cockpit and you know i'm kind of looking outside and i see you know then like this gray smoke and white smoke and i kind of this moment of shock like what's happening and you know it's very quickly uh, and realize that not only is there a firefight going on across the river, back and forth with the enemy, um, but they're also shooting at us too. Mm-hmm. And so we just decided we needed to get in there as quick as we could to take the pressure off our friendly troops. And we did a couple passes and that was all we were going to do just based on the, the, the threat and the risk level. And so we did our couple passes and it was my last pass, uh, which was a rocket pass. Um, so we did everything to set up, you know, to make sure my distance from the target was correct, my altitude, all my switches, and then rolled in, um, pointed my nose right underneath this bridge where the enemy was hiding, um, and seven rockets went down on the enemy, and then just pulled really hard to get away from the ground, away from the threat, when I was just back in the cockpit. It was like a car crash. It was just instant of, I knew immediately I'd been hit. I mean, it was a bright flash. It dumped the airplane nose low. Uh, I remember looking down and I could see Baghdad below me. I remember pulling back on the stick and um, nothing happened. I mean, the airplane did nothing. Wow. And it's, you know, it's that moment of an emergency of like, you know, you there's nobody else in that airplane that's going to do anything but me. And I just remember thinking, I looked down at those ejection handles and I thought, not yet, you know, the last thing I want to do is eject and ride a parachute down into the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so I did what we do in every emergency, um, which was attempt to maintain aircraft control, which I really couldn't, but it was trying to analyze what happened. So, you know, trying to analyze the situation as quickly as I could. And we had master caution lights flashing. We have a panel over on our side and it was like, lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. But at the top, we have two lights for hydraulic pressure and reservoir and they were both on for the left side and the right side and then right above that are these gauges and um, I remember looking at them and the hydraulics were at zero and so I I mean at this point there was only one thing I could do other than eject and that was to flip a switch Uh, we have a backup emergency system called manual reversion flip the switch and uh, thankfully as I pulled back on the stick the airplane then started to climb out and away from Baghdad kind of that first moment of like all right I might actually make it out of here alive wow um yeah so that all happened during, that was a matter I think yeah. I, I went back and looked and I think it was like 20 seconds between oh my goodness. Wow. all of that happening um but I remember so many things mostly Baghdad kind of getting closer with the realization yeah. of the last thing I need right now is to eject uh, yeah. so it's really yeah. about survival and doing everything I could to kind of maintain composure in that really crucial moment and rely on all the training that I've had. Wow. So like how, uh, what was your altitude kind of at that right. point? Um, I was at about 6,900 feet. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And we normally operate in the A-10 at about 15 to 20,000 feet. Oh, um, yeah. And yeah. so, um, this was a little bit lower. Um, but, so when I got hit, I was at a, at a you know roughly seven thousand feet. Mm-hmm. 
um, I don't remember exactly how much altitude I lost, but it was enough to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah. With the situation. Not yeah. to mention they were still shooting at us. So, um, so I'm sure you, you practice like tons of like emergency things all the time, right? We do, you know, and that's the thing I think that in that moment, I, you know, I didn't have time to think about it. I, I didn't, I didn't have time to ask for help. I didn't even have time to open my checklist. It was just react. And we do, I mean, that's the thing I, you know, I, I really believe in chair flying and walking through and thinking through emergencies um, before they happen, because in that moment, there's no time to really, it, it happens so fast. And so you just have to be able to rely on your training um, so we, 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 we practice emergencies in a simulator, we, uh, chair fly them, you know, I, all through my training, I chair flew every mission I flew um, the night before, because it was, it's like a freebie, right? To sit yeah. down in front of my printed then cockpit display and just think through the mission, think through radio calls. But I always did the, what if like, okay, what if this goes wrong? What if this happens? Um, and then I think in that moment, when that worst case scenario does happen, you're ready. Um, yeah. And ideally, you perform at your best. I mean, that's what you're hoping for, that in that moment, you can recall all those things that you trained yeah. for. I think that takes chair flying to a whole nother level when you're doing that kind of a mission. And, you know, your life is at stake. Other people's lives are at stake. And so you really have to know what your mission is, you know, and just go through what the what ifs because the second that I read this story I was thinking like well she can't she can't eject there because like what if they catch her yeah, <laughs> yeah. no I thought too <laughs> yeah <clears throat> I'm sure yeah. that's something you and definitely we, thought of after yeah the fact and well and we we brief it right so we fly <clears throat> in a two ship so there's there was another a10 about a mile from me Mm -hmm. And we, we sit down before the mission and we talk about the worst case scenario. We talk about, we call it wounded birds. So somebody's been hit. Now, what do you do? And I will tell you that we, um, having a wingman, right. Having somebody next to me when that happened was, was critical because for me, you know, I was so focused on flying the airplane. I mean, that was all I, like my little bubble shrunk to right in front of me, but he had this awareness to, one, tell me to fly to the West because the friendlies were over on the West. And so in his mind, if I had to eject, at least I had a chance of what? riding a parachute down into the friendlies. Um, he also told me to emergency jettison all of my ordnance. So we carry a lot of bombs, a lot mm -hmm. of missiles, and it's heavy. Um, and once I told him I was in manual reversion, he was like, emergency jettison everything now. And as soon as I hit the button to emergency jettison everything, now I could start climbing. But, mm -hmm. you know, just having that wingman there to support me and, and tell me to continue putting out chaff and flare, which is our system to, that we put out to try to, if there was another missile, ideally the missile would bite off on the chaff and flare instead of my airplane. But I just, you know, I was so focused on flying and trying to recover the airplane that I just didn't have the brain bites to do that. And so I think that's the, the other important piece to this, right? I didn't do it by myself. I, I had a, a wingman there to help me kind of in that really difficult moment. And tell you what's going on around your aircraft because you didn't, you can't see in that cockpit, see what had happened. So yeah. your entire tail could have been gone and, you know, that would affect your landing or, you know, whatever. Yeah, we, um, we have mirrors in the cockpit and I kept, I remember once I got out of Baghdad, right. And now I'm like, okay, I got to breathe a little bit of side of relief above the weather, feel like we're not, it's not so much of a threat at this point. I'm like, okay, what just happened? You know, what I know that I don't have hydraulics, but I don't really know why other than a missile impacted the back of my airplane. Um, and he did what we call battle damage check. So he flew right next to me and kind of did the look over of the airplane. And I remember him saying, you have hundreds of holes in the fuselage and tail, and then a hole about the size of the, a football in the back horizontal stabilizer, mm -hmm. which is back tail section of the plane. And I remember thinking, hmm. That doesn't sound very good, but I'm happy the airplane is still flying. <laughs> it's still flying. It's still flying. Um, but I knew because I was in this backup system called manual reversion, which is really just like old school cranks and cables, um, mm -hmm. allowing you to fly under a more mechanical mode. I knew that I had a decision to make of either fly the airplane back to friendly territory and eject or fly the airplane back and attempt to land. And so that was probably... Other than in that moment reacting, 
that was a really hard decision because I felt like, you know, what if I made the wrong choice? I mean, I really felt like it was almost a life and death decision. You know, I just didn't know. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the good news is I had an hour to fly and get comfortable flying the airplane. And I so remember reacting to him. Yeah. You know, I, I remembered stories from pilots who had flown before me in Desert Storm who had talked about flying in manual reversion. And so I, I remembered their stories. You know, that's why I think it's so important to share war stories or hangar stories. <laughs> you know, that's why you do it, right? Because somebody else can learn from it. And, and all of those things weighed into my decision of attempting to land the airplane. Um, and, but it was nerve wracking. I mean, that's a hour to think through all the terrible things that could happen. I was going to say a very stressful hour, just like, Hopefully I'll make it at least just a little bit longer. So I'm trying to think through a little bit more what I'm going to do, plan a little bit. Yeah. In some ways, having the time was really good because I felt very comfortable flying. After I flew the airplane for an hour, I, I felt really good about it. But it's a long time to think about the possibility of crashing on landing. I mean, I, I tried not to think about that, but um, we talked about it. We talked about all the things that could go wrong. Um, we talked about actually landing at a base in Iraq that uh, at this point, the U.S. military had owned and um we chose to overfly the base because they didn't have a crash recovery they had one fire truck and there was no hospital so like you know we went through that mindset of like okay well if you crash uh and then then there's no ambulance or hospital to go to that's not really a good situation so let's go all the way back to Kuwait so we had to really talk about some of those things but it was tough and you know just trying to compartmentalize and think about focusing on that task at hand Mm-hmm. Um, is really all that I could do. Well, so, so what happened? Exhausting, like flying the plane, like in this reversion mode. Um, yes. So other than the mental exhaustion of like trying to keep my brain on track of just yeah. going through all the emergency checklists multiple, multiple times, but also physically exhausting. So because you're just flying on um, trim tabs, it's it's you know just the airplane is harder to control. I try to I, I try to give an example, and the best thing that I have come up with that really was shared with me was it's like driving a dump truck without power steering. It's just harder. It's like it nothing mm-hmm. moves quite right. And the other problem I had was I had emergency jettisoned everything but a, a a pod of it's an electronic countermeasure pod, but it's hardwired to the airplane, and it was out of my left wing, which meant that the airplane, if I let go of the stick, would just wanted to do these aileron rolls not really a great thing when you have no hydraulics. And so uh, it really was fighting that the whole way. And I remember again from pilots that had flown in manual reversion before me that had said, look, fly with both hands on the stick, you know, fly, change left, right hand. And just so that you're not exhausted when it comes time to land. Um, but yeah, I was, I will tell you, I was pretty <laughs> dang exhausted when yeah. I landed probably because, you know, there was a lot of adrenaline as well. Yeah. Well, after landing, in that kind of situation, I'm sure with the military, you always have like kind of a debrief of everything, but like, what did the hours after that mission look like? Or, I mean, did you sneak in a nap? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, after landing, I, I, I debriefed first. We did what we do after every mission was just as a debrief, mostly because we wanted to get the word out about the threats in the area and uh, to share that with other pilots. So we did a debrief as we flew back. Um, we did a debrief when we landed, uh, just to talk about, you know, yes, it was successful because I landed the airplane successfully, but we wanted to kind of pull out those lessons learned. The thing I remember most was actually going to the chow hall to eat, because uh, this was an early, really early morning mission, and walking into the chow hall, and I, I remember opening the door and just feeling like this room full of hundreds of people just suddenly stopped and turned to like stare at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was one of, I think, three uh, women pilots on the base, but mm-hmm. word had spread rapidly about what had happened. And so I just remember walking in and realizing that everybody was staring at me and kind of spreading the story about what had happened. Um, and there was a Marine pilot there. We shared the base with the Marines and he walked up to me afterwards and he was like, Hey, Casey, great. You know, really nice landing. So were you scared? And I was like, no, I'm a fire pilot. Like fire pilots don't get scared, right? We're invincible. 
know why, by the way. I was, <laughs> and, you know, I thought, well, I didn't have time to be scared, right? That was what I told myself. Didn't yeah. have time to be scared. Um, but we record everything that we do in the cockpit. Uh, so I went back and watched the video. And That'd be interesting. Scared. I was terrified, right? I can hear my voice. I, I mean, it was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Um, but I go back to this point, like, yeah, you know what? It's hard to admit it, right? But it's what you do when you are scared, right? If you're scared, and yeah, we, I think we're, we've all been there, but if you can actually take action in that moment. But I just remember telling that Marine, like, nope, I wasn't scared. You know, fighter pilots no. don't scared. <laughs> that yeah. reminds me of. Yeah. Until you have an emergency in the airplane, and then, like, you know. You, yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> It reminds me of Heather's, um, her situation and, you know, it's like, oh, you just go back to your normal daily routines and everything's back to normal. And then the next day they throw you in a plane again because you don't have time to, you don't have time to think, I mean, you have time to think about it, but you probably really hit you later on and not that day or, you know, the real. Yeah, it, um. I actually, so the next day, one of the things that we do in the A-10 also is combat search and rescue. And so uh, we would sit alert, which means we'd be right out in, uh, in these shacks next to our airplanes. And just usually meant you sleep, you read, whatever. And, um, um, and I think they probably put me on combat search and rescue alert just to give me a down day, like just to give me a little bit of a breather. Um, and then, of course, what happens is... Um, we got launched because the alarm sounded and we got launched because an A-10 pilot had been shot down. And so I just remember, you know, I didn't think about flying again. I just ran to the jet as fast as I could, put on all my gear and we took off, you know, because those guys had been there for me the day before, you know, they weren't sure if I was going to make it back. So they were ready to go to come get me. Um, and, um, I was going to do the same for this guy, this pilot that was on the ground. And so I didn't have time to think about it. I just got in the airplane and took off and we, we made it about 30 minutes into Iraq and learned he had been picked up by ground troops, friendly ground troops. Mm -hmm. But that was my way of getting back in the airplane. And, and then it was just like, well, I did it once. I can do it again. Um, and I, I think I just really compartmentalized the whole thing. Just didn't think about it a lot until after I got home. I mean, there was a, there was a war going on and I, you know, they needed every pilot that they could get to fly missions. So um, I kind of went back to my whole purpose of flying the A-10, which was supporting our troops on the ground. And I knew that I needed to continue to do that. So I think that's really how I kind of got through it. But you're right. It was just like, well, yep, war's going on. Get right back in the airplane. Get, you know, get right back into it. Get back in the air. Yeah. I've heard a lot about that, the A-10. I think probably after your stories, when I heard it, you may have heard before because you were talking about other pilot stories that that airplane is a very um kind of reminds me of what I've heard about like the B-17 it can really take a lot to get it down yeah that, it's an impressive airplane I mean it was built to take hits while performing its mission because the primary mission was to support the ground troops so um everything from the pilot sits in a titanium bathtub I mean it's a, a tub around the pilot uh to protect us against enemy fire um the the cockpit and the canopy um, has protection against small arms fire. Our fuel tanks have this protective foam lining so that if they do t get a hit, it's, the intent is that there's no fire, um, mm -hmm. which I can attest to. Um, yeah. It's built so that if you lose one hydraulic system, then the other takes over. And if you lose both, it's a backup emergency system. Um, and, uh, you know, it's when I when my airplane was hit, a fire, there was a fire. I mean, the back of the airplane had, was charred and um, covered with hydraulic fluid. Um, the air, the engine, my number two engines, uh, so two engines in the A-10, uh, but the number two engine actually took some shrapnel damage and mm -hmm. just kept turning, you know, just continued to work despite the shrapnel damage. And my flight lead actually told me that he said, yeah, on the way back, because he, he just followed me the whole way back. And he said, uh, yeah, there's pieces of your airplane coming off on the way back because I didn't really want to tell you because it didn't seem to like be something relevant at the point, which you know, is good. You know, he asked me a lot about my engine. I was like, it's why do you keep asking me about my engine? I have a hydraulic problem, not an engine problem. 
And then I get out and look at the engine and it's got holes all over it. So yeah, um, not to, not to panic you, but your engine (laughs) also is about to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He told me enough to keep me informed, but not too much that I would have, you know, had more to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was good thinking. Um, so when you, uh, how much longer were you actually over there? Uh, so that was April, and we we went home in July. So several okay. months. Yeah. So of flying. So yeah. There's just um, you know, there again, there is a war going on, and I wanted to be part of it just because that those were my brothers and sisters out there, you know, in the air that we were flying with and on the ground, and you want to. You know, you know, nobody wants to go to war, but if if it happens, that's what we were trained to do. All right. Yeah. I I recently read a story online about a girl that had a aviation incident, and you know, she was like, "Well, do you tell your family? Do you tell them what's going on?" I mean, at that time, I mean, did you tell anybody what had happened, or can you tell anybody what had happened, or? Uh, so my husband is also an A-10 pilot and he happened to be on the ground, uh, deployed with, um, a special forces unit. So he wasn't there flying at the time. Thank goodness he was sleeping when it happened because he didn't have to hear about it in real time and wonder what was going to happen. Um, and so I had called him on a secure phone line after the event and, uh, he, since he was asleep, his intelligence officer left him a note. And it said, hey, your wife got hit over Baghdad. You should give her a call, but she's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But she's okay. She's okay. And then um, my squadron commander actually had me call my parents, um, which I did not want to do. The last thing I wanted to do was tell my parents because they would worry. And, of course, they were worried already. But I called them at, like, 1 in the morning in California and woke them up and just was like, hey, just so you know, I'm okay, had a rough day, but just want you to know I'm, I'm good. And then my dad, because of his um, time in the military, had a friend of a friend of a friend ended up sending pictures. This was early ages of digital cameras, so he got a few pictures um, on email. And so I was thankful I called them because I would have hate, hated for them to find out. For them to know. And, and, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And I didn't have kids at the time, so my kids, you know, that wasn't really a factor. Mm-hmm. Um but we've since talked about it. My kids are um, now eight and 12 and uh, my older son actually, I think might've Googled me one day and was like, <laughs> mom, sorry about. <laughs> so um, yeah, you know, it's one of those things cool. now it's a little bit easier for them to, you know, to share and talk about. But yeah. at the time I didn't, I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want anybody to worry. Little mm-hmm. did I know that, you know, CNN and, you know, yeah news outlets would make such a big deal out of it yeah so how does it feel talking about that we talked a little bit about um uh because of this mission you received the distinguished flying cross and we were talking a little bit about well for me i just wondered if it was like surreal because i'm reading all the names of these some of these people like jimmy doolittle and you know all these astronauts and jackie cochran who received it to think Wow, I actually received that too. Like, what does that feel like? Uh, it's humbling, I think, more than anything. I, you know, in the moment when I heard that I was going to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross, it was just like, wow, am I worthy to receive that? I feel like I was just doing my job and I was supporting our troops on the ground. And I mean, it was an incredible honor, don't get me wrong. But when you look at the list of names of people that have received that, like, wow. Just, yeah, it feels a little overwhelming. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that for the honor, I will tell you that one of the, the things that I have that probably means more to me than anything else um, in terms of recognition is a, a note that I got from some troops on the ground. Uh, and I wasn't in the squadron, but they came by to say thank you. And so they scribbled a little note for me that said, um, thanks for saving our ass over Baghdad and signed their names to it. And like, that's what matters, right? Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's why I have done, you know, that's why I love flying the A-10. That's why I love, you know, absolutely love what I do is because of that. And that to me means more than anything. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, what, no. you, you did deserve it, by the way. And thank you <laughs> thank so you. much for, for your service and um, for doing that. You know, I mean, I have such, I just respect the military so much and, 
and what they do. And I'm sure, you know, the guys on the ground, they're trained to do their thing, but it's, it's risky, you know, it's scary. And you all have to kind of work together in order to, to try to save as many lives as you possibly can. And you're not doing it. I know to try to earn the distinguished flying cross, you're doing it because you care about those people. Those are people, the families and, you know, you want to do all you can to save them. And I think that's, that is very heroic. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's exactly why I chose the A-10, you know, and I think um, it's nice to know that you make a difference. I think, you know, when you think about what you want to do with your life and, um, you know, in terms of the goals that I've set for myself, like I, I know that some of the things that I have done in combat have helped people get home safely to their families. And so knowing that I've made a difference and knowing that I can make an impact, I think that's what's been really important to me. Yeah. I just, that's really yeah. awesome. Awesome. I know. Yeah. I'm like, this is another Heather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, after after that trip over there, how many more missions? Or you know, did you fly the A10? Are you flying the A10 now? Like, what is your transition after flying? What's so I had about 300 hours in the A10 at the time. So I was a fairly junior wingman. Um, and um, I have now close to 2,000 hours in the airplane. Um, sadly, I'm not flying the A-10 anymore. It's, uh, you know, I, I took an assignment to the Air Force Academy. Um, and so now I'm flying the T-53, which is a Cirrus. And um, I, uh, I don't get to shoot the gun. I don't get to drop bombs anymore. But I get to teach cadets um, about flying and talk to cadets about flying and um, convince some of them that, you know, or not convince them, but get to show them all the amazing things that flying um, has to offer. So it's not the same. I do miss it, uh, but I love getting the opportunity to kind of impact the next generation of, of pilots. You yeah. mean they don't just have like an A-10 sitting there for you to go fly every day? <laughs> That's awesome. But no, I mean, I can't that. you at least like pay the fuel and take one out? Yeah, right. that would be so awesome. Right. So what is your actual title now? What do you do in the Air Force? Uh, so now I am the director for the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the Air Force Academy. Uh, and so I get an opportunity to work with cadets and our faculty and staff um, in their professional development. So, um, really awesome. you know, from coming from a, a young wingman, not very much experience, I've had the opportunity throughout my career to be a squadron commander, so in charge of about um, a couple hundred people, and then moving on to a group commander, which... I was in charge of more like a thousand people. And so um, I've had a lot of leadership and life lessons along the way. And I will tell you that that mission that I had over Iraq kind of set the stage for everything for me because I got to see, you know, what it was like to, to be in a unit that um, really worked together well to accomplish the mission. And so I've loved the opportunity to lead um, and be responsible for now young airmen sharing the stories um, about, you know, uh, the things that I've experienced during my career, just like pilots before me have shared their experience, you know, now it's my, my chance to give back a little bit and share with them. Yeah. Were you still flying the A-10 when you had children or were you in this role? Like how, how is that transition to becoming a mom and flying an A-10? I mean, that's pretty badass. Um, I was flying the A-10s um, really up until the last few years. So yeah, I, I have, wow. um, my kids got to experience a little bit of it. We'd take them out to the flight line and they'd be more interested in the fire trucks, quite honestly, than the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, right when um, my last assignment, when I was flying A-10s, we did get them the opportunity to go in the simulator. They got to climb up in an A-10. So now they think it's actually pretty cool. Um, but when they were little, they they didn't care. I mean, they thought the fire trucks were pretty cool and we're happy to climb over a fire truck and we're like these airplane things are just making noise all around us. <laughs> Do you think um, either of your kids are interested in aviation or maybe military or I mean, do you see any of those kind of wheels turning? I do. Yeah, they are. Um, my older son has interest in going to the Air Force Academy. And then my um, younger son uh, has decided that he's going to go to West Point. So that uh, to he wants to be in the Army, to be in the Special Forces, uh, which scares awesome. me, of course. But, um, <laughs> you know, we'll see. We'll see. I, I had a lot of different, you know, 
goals in mind growing up and you know you never know what sticks but I just want yeah. them to find what they enjoy yeah. and love to do yeah well it sounds like you you've done they want to serve it sounds like so you've done an amazing job um kind of passing that on that's something that was important to you and and they feel that feel that desire too that's cool yeah it's kind of fun to see and they'll you know they'll do it in their own way and there's no yeah. pressure I mean I just again yeah. you know you always just want your kids to find something that they love and are passionate about so we'll see I mean they're 8 and 12 they've got time true true that's awesome so what's next? I mean, I know you do like some speaking engagements and things like that, um, but your military career, what's the plan? What's in the future for you? So I will retire um, this summer after 24 years of service. Wow. Crazy. Um, you know, it's really, it's been so much a part of my life. So I will retire this summer. And my husband retired last summer, so we're slowly transitioning and figuring it out. Um, but I have, uh, over the past few years, I've been working on a book. So my, my goal and my hope right. is that I will get that book out and get it published. Yeah. It just shares some of the stories, the flying experiences and the lessons learned. Um, and then I do hope to continue speaking. I mean, COVID's been a really interesting time. Yeah. And, you know, we're all anxious to get back to things like Oshkosh and different events out there and um, I would you know would love to be able to get out and share a little bit more of the story and I, I love connecting with people and um, and sharing kind of those lessons that people shared with me I think that's yeah. important so I'm, I'm looking forward to that yeah so looking forward to a little bit of time off and a little bit of downtime and decompression right. time and travel time uh, when that when we get back to that mm-hmm wow well, I would think being, you know, being in the military, it's kind of like a, I guess maybe a bittersweet um, chapter ending, you know, kind of thing. That's been your life for a long time. And I know it's like a family, I'm sure that um, it's like the aviation commu community. We talk about it all the time on the podcast. It's so great. But then you've got, it seems like an even more special family, the military family and the aviation thing. And you'll, like you said before, I know you'll like, you've made friendships and you'll have these people in your lives for a very long time. I'm sure. Yeah, it is hard. I think, um, you know, especially if I look back to my early deployments, I mean, you make such a connection with people when you go to combat together and those are, those are relationships that will last. And so, yeah, it's a little bit sad because, you know, I know I'm closing that chapter and, um, but I know that I will still stay in touch with all of those people and, um, you know, that just being retired won't change that, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a complete, it's a family. It's been, it's been our family for 24 years and, um, 28, if you count my time at the Air Force Academy. So it's been a long time, a good portion of my life. Uh, yeah. so it, was, it is a little bit sad, but at the same time, I'm excited for what comes next. I'm excited for the book. <laughs> Me too. I'm already like, please get it out. I yeah. read it. And, and I'm thinking about earlier, you mentioned um, war stories and coming out of your mouth. It's hilarious to me because like, what is she talking about? War stories, like war stories are for like old grumpy men in the military back, you know, way back when. And so it's really cool to have somebody on the podcast that, you know, has these war stories, but is a female and that is, has been there and experienced all these things. And that's what I love about the podcast is just being able to share these stories with other people and make connections. And then, you know, everybody has these little things that they might connect, but they might not who you know who you are until this podcast or, yeah. you know, just, it's just so cool that aviation is so connected in that way. And so, yeah, yeah, I think I, I absolutely love that. You know, it just, it's a way, no matter, you know, no matter how you came about to get there, like there's just doesn't no matter common stories and lessons and yeah I think that's what's that's what's fun about it which is you know um why I really enjoyed my time at Oshkosh it was just such a I don't know exciting environment